OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensis as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer oncology-led podcast. So welcome to podcast number 69. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Namanjelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guests, Rick Kine and Melanie Clarkson, who talked about advanced practice. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go in and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Rhea Crichton, who's going to be discussing her experience of having cancer and her amazing, incredible career um, and generally all the amazing work she does for advocacy for patients um, and lots of lots of the allied health professions as well as obviously nursing. So welcome, Rhea. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really um kind of yeah it's lovely to be here and to follow such massive footsteps that you've had on previously so yeah it's really nice thank you oh no it's our absolute honor I've had the pleasure of working with you on lots of different projects and it's always an absolute delight to be able to kind of hear your story and hear all your experiences and and all the amazing work you do of which everyone is now going to hopefully hear about so Ria, if you feel comfortable, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what your experience of cancer has been to date? Yeah, um, so I guess I'll start at the beginning, I suppose. Um, so I was five months pregnant with my little boy, who is now a big six-year-old, um, and I was started to have some kind of um, very light bleeding Um and as you would, you kind of thought, oh, my goodness, you know, baby and placenta. And so I went to the hospital and got it checked out, ultrasounds, investigations, and baby was absolutely fine. And they said that, you know, it's one of those things it can happen. So that kind of continues happening over the next couple of months intermittently. 
And then by the time I got to about what seven and a half, eight months pregnant, the bleeding was becoming quite frequent and a lot heavier. Um, every time I had a bleed, I'd go into the hospital, obviously still worried about baby. Um, and they were really lovely and really supportive. And they never, you know, they were never worried about me going in. It was always very supportive. And they do an ultrasound and do an examination and everything was always fine. So they couldn't quite figure out why it was happening and just said it's one of those things. But as the pregnancy progressed, I started to get a lot of back pain, leg pain, started to have problems um, with pain when I was trying to have my bowels open or kind of problems passing urine. And again, all of these things are things that can happen when you're pregnant. They're just some of those symptoms that unfortunately some people do experience. So again, there was never any concerns about me because baby was fine as well. My bloods, my orbs, everything else was fine. Um, so in a way, now in hindsight, I was very lucky that my little boy was breech. Um, and so I had him by kind of a semi-elective, semi-emergency C-section. Um, I was booked to have an elective C-section and was brought in a couple of weeks early because of the bleeding and started having some kind of irregular contractions, um, which is really grateful for now looking back in hindsight, because if I tried to have him naturally, it would have probably gone quite wrong. So he knows that he's my little miracle baby who potentially saved me from having a horrific experience. Um, and that all went fine. He was um, really healthy and I recovered really well from the surgery and um, actually probably recovered better from that than I did my natural birth with my daughter. Um, so I went back to going about being a new mum. I was still having some back pain and leg pain and still having some problems with my bowels. But again, I just had a C-section. I'd just been pregnant. I didn't really think much of it. I just thought it was because I had a history of fibromyalgia as well. And I just thought with all the hormones, it had kind of caused problems and flared it up. Um, it was probably, I think I was at my six-week checkup, I was told, you know, some people just take longer for symptoms to settle, so to give it a little bit longer. And then at eight weeks, I went to see my health visitor, and they said, you know what, it's probably gone on too long now. You need to get it checked out. I do remember when I went in just before I had my son that they did say that I had a very angry cervix. Not quite sure. I think they probably meant it was quite inflamed and red, um, but they classed it angry cervix. I had images of, like, the Hulk. <laughs> um <laughs> And they did suggest that I have cervical screening done once I'd kind of recovered um, and after I'd gone past my kind of postpartum check. Um, and I was due to have my next cervical screening anyway. Um, I'd always had them regularly since I was 18 and I'd never had any problems with them. So I was due my next one. Um, but I went to see my GP and the GP did an examination and immediately sent me to the emergency department. They thought I had a post um, kind of section infection or maybe I had a bit of retained placenta, which can cause kind of problems with bleeding. Um, there was never any concern concerns about malignancy. I was, what, 34? Um, so obviously quite young, and it's not what they were kind of thinking at all. So I went in, had antibiotics, had medication to try and stop the bleeding, um, and eventually saw um, the gynecology registrar who did an examination and an ultrasound and referred me for colposcopy because it was an, uh, an abnormal examination, um, and the ultrasound showed that my cervix was quite bulky looking, which is generally not a good sign, um, as I now know. Um, so I went for the colposcopy with baby in tow. He was around nine weeks. I think at that point um, and a really lovely distraction for the nurses and, and, and doctors supporting as well as myself um, and on the day of the colposcopy I remember the consultant who did the colposcopy was very honest when I put him on the spot and he said that he could see a visible mass 
um, and that I needed to have some biopsies done and I would need to have um, further investigations and examination under anaesthetic, um, probably CT, MRI um, and possibly other things as well. And I remember asking him outright on the date, what are the chances that this is a benign mass um, and he was very honest when put on the spot and told me then and there that it was 99% certain that it was a malignancy but obviously they needed to do further investigations to find out what it was and how advanced it was and so by the time I got my diagnosis which was when my little boy was 12 weeks old I'd actually ended up being admitted as an emergency via ambulance um, so my diagnosis was sped up a little bit because I managed to have my MRI scans whilst I was an inpatient. Um, but I'd been admitted with very high temperatures. I was having temperatures of kind of 41 degrees and having really quite severe rigors where I couldn't stop shaking. Um, the pain in my pelvis was just horrendous. The bleeding had got heavier and um, yeah, it was just come to a point where I think my body just had enough. Um, and it was just after I was discharged, so it was one day before my boy was 12 weeks old. Um, I went to have the follow-up appointment with the consultant who uh, informed me that I had stage 2B um, squamous cell cervical cancer, which was node positive. So at the time, um, the FIGO staging that they use for gynecological cancers, nodes didn't affect the stage, but it affects the prognosis. Um, so... We discussed kind of treatment plans and the treatment was to do not pass go, just go straight for kind of chemo radiation. There was no surgery. Um, it was around a greater than five centimetre tumour um, and because it had spread locally as well. Luckily, it was all contained within the pelvis, but because it had spread into several of the nodes, um, I needed to have kind of chemo and radiotherapy. Um, so it was quite a long wait actually before I started treatment or well, it felt like a really long time um, I got the diagnosis beginning of December and I started my treatment the middle of January um, and that felt like an eternity waiting to to kind of start the treatment and go through all the planning and have the PET scan that I needed and things um, and have my tattoos um, which I still have now and look a bit like weird prison blobs of greeny blueiness um, no butterflies or skulls or anything it's very disappointing <laughs> um, and then I started my treatment, um, which I have to say at the time, it, the chemotherapy was what really hit me. So I was supposed to have five cycles of cisplatin chemotherapy and I managed three out of the five of them. It was just hideous. I remember begging the oncologist to not give me any more chemo. I said, I'll do anything else. You can give me more radiation, but I just I don't want any more chemo. I was so sick. I lost like 10 kilos within a couple of weeks and couldn't keep anything down and um, had quite severe tinnitus and neuropathy during it as well, quite acutely. Um, so they listened. They were really kind of um, kind of person centred and very much, you know, supported shared decision making. Um, and they really listened and heard what I was saying. And so they stopped my chemo and I didn't have to have any more chemo, but I did have to have some extra radiotherapy um, to kind of make up for it. So I ended up having 28 fractions of external beam radiotherapy um, and then I had three one, once a week brachytherapy sessions at the end of it as well. Um, although my one of my sessions of brachytherapy overlapped with the external beam radiotherapy as well. So I kind of had a couple of days where I had both of them. Um, and actually, from the radiotherapy point of view, it was 
quite an easy process to go through. It didn't take long. It wasn't painful during. The staff were absolutely lovely. They were really supportive um, and really compassionate. Um, luckily, for most of the time, I got to meet kind of similar people when I was going through. Um, so I kind of got to build up a bit of a rapport and they got to know my family and stuff and would ask questions about it. It was really nice kind of positive distraction. Um, and then the brachytherapy, again, what could have been quite a traumatic experience potentially was actually quite a positive one. The team looking after me were amazing. I still remember the um, lead for it. Well, I think she's the lead now. She wasn't at the time, but um, she was just incredible. She would make me giggle during it and really kind of funny jokes and distractions and um and actually that's what I remember more than anything else was how good she was at being compassionate and just really good at using those interpersonal skills to put somebody at ease when actually they could be quite traumatized um so yeah it was actually quite a positive experience I'm glad that I had the weekly outpatients I think that was far more manageable and especially with the young family at home I still got to go home and you know see them and stuff as well um from an acute side effects point of view, as I said, the chemo was the worst at the time. Um, the radiotherapy, it wasn't until a couple of weeks after it started that the symptoms kicked in. Um, and, you know, the bowel and bladder symptoms acutely were quite severe. Um, bladder, it was quite cystitis-y feeling, very burning. You didn't really want to pass urine. It felt like glass. Um, the uh, urgency and the frequency with the diarrhoea from the radiation that got to at one point I think at its peak I was kind of passing stool like 20 times a day it was hideous um and it was I don't think however much um my team warned me that potentially I could get acute side effects affecting the bowel and bladder I don't think however much you try and tell people you can't really get across what it might be like until you experience it so I certainly you know I didn't hold it against them that it was far worse than I thought it would be because everyone's so different you know I've met some people who actually got away and didn't really have too many problems with it um but again the team were really supportive and you know I had lots of advice and guidance about managing the acute side effect side of things um and yeah, it actually went really quickly. It was over within kind of, what, six weeks from start to finish. Um, it was done and dusted. Within a couple of weeks of finishing the chemotherapy, I started getting some more energy back again, um, started to go out and do a few more things. Um, the one thing, I suppose, with the radiotherapy that I wasn't expecting as much that I expected with the chemo, but not so much, I don't remember being told as much with the radiotherapy, was the fatigue um, that actually it's really exhausting um, and I put it down to the chemo to start with but after I'd finished the chemo I was still really tired um, and now afterwards I've spoken to lots of other people and they've said that actually that's quite common with the radiotherapy I think you know your body's trying to recover from that you know, the radiation it's having that it really does wipe it out of you um, and I think obviously the psychological impact of going through it is going to have an impact on how you feel as well but overall it was actually a really positive experience um, to go through and a really supportive one um, and that was all down to my team I think and again it wasn't that clinical skills or their knowledge about physics or anything that I knew about or remember it was purely the fact that they were just lovely human beings that were just really good at putting people at ease and just really kind and compassionate really so yeah it was uh, an interesting experience um, probably, I think I described it as an extreme form of continuing professional development. <laughs> I certainly learned a lot about cannulation and medications and treatments. And um, as a nurse, that was actually quite useful. It's given me a lot of uh, 
privileged insight to have to support patients with now as well. I was going to say, Ria, as well as a cancer patient and having to go through all of that, do you want to tell the audience what it is that you do? Well, at the time when I went through treatment, I was a pain specialist nurse. Um, so I worked um, in London um, and supported patients with kind of more chronic type pain from all kinds of things, including cancer. Um, and I still didn't, even though I was a nurse and I thought I was a fairly educated nurse as well. A lot of the stuff that came up, I never even considered. I still kind of, I think I had a lot of my insight as to what cancer was was from social media and films and television series which was probably not that accurate <laughs> um you know I didn't lose my hair um not the hair on my head anyway um I kept all of that I didn't look you know thin and emaciated because I'd been pregnant I actually lost all my baby weight and probably looked the healthiest that I'd ever looked I looked great my physique was wonderful afterwards <laughs> again not a diet I would recommend um but yeah, a lot of the kind of myths and misconceptions out there and a lot of the way that it's portrayed in the media, I didn't, it didn't fit with who I was or what my experience was. And I found that quite difficult, actually, because I kind of felt I wasn't fitting into how a, a cancer patient should be in inverted commas. Um, so that was quite tricky because when I looked at things, I thought, well, that's that's not me. That I don't fit that. Um, so where do I kind of fit into it? But then from speaking to other patients and joining forums and things, I realised that actually... You know, especially with, um, you know, cervical cancer, the treatment, you don't lose your hair generally for primary treatment with cisplatin. Lots of other effects, but not hair loss. Um, so, yeah. But then, so since my experience um, and since learning more and gaining more experience and meeting incredible people through social media like yourselves um i couldn't retrain to be a therapeutic radiographer unfortunately i couldn't afford it um i have thought about it but i really i was gonna say to i'm it. sure i've tried on numerous occasions <laughs> yeah, Ria, no, to get I, you <laughs> i've tried to infiltrate and try and become an honorary one but um i really wanted to find a way that i could um do more to support patients and try and make a difference for for kind of um, patients going through cancer diagnosis in their family. So I moved into a role as clinical matron for cancer services locally where I work in North Devon. And I did that for 18 months, which was a fantastic opportunity and um, really gave me a really good insight into the behind the scenes of cancer services and what goes on to try and keep services running um, and the stresses and challenges that they face but also the really positives that come out of it well and how passionate staff who work in cancer services are um, I've never met such amazingly kind of passionate and determined people as I have within cancer services whether it's nursing or allied health professions um, all the way from you know porters and the cleaners all the way up to the consultants so um, yeah it was a really lovely opportunity but I found that I missed my patients. I'd been a clinical nurse specialist for 10 years before I took the job on. Um, and I struggled without having that direct patient contact and using um, the skills. So I'm a prescriber and I've done my advanced assessment. So I kind of missed utilising those skills. Um, and so I wanted to kind of find a way where I could maybe combine my uh experience as a clinical matron and also use some of the advanced practice skills that I have and find a way to kind of um, do everything that I wanted to do and what I'm very passionate about being gynecological cancer um, and so I have now literally this week moved into my new role as um, a gynecological uh, cancer clinical nurse specialist in the local hospital that I work in so um, which is lovely and um, giving give me lots of wonderful opportunities to support patients and develop the service as well to be 
able to make sure that we're supporting patients as they need to be supported and should be supported and developing that for them. So, yeah, I feel like I've found my um, my little place where I can hopefully make a bit of a difference. So, yeah, really excited. Lots to learn, but very excited to do it. Maria, can I ask, why did you want to go into cancer? Lots of people who have a cancer diagnosis or treatment, they try and run away from it. Yeah, um, I've never been one to run away. Um, I tend to charge more headlong towards. <laughs> it's more my personality. Um, so for a bit of background, I went into being a pain specialist nurse and did my master's in pain um, because I had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia um, at a, a quite a young age. I was 21 when I was diagnosed with it. Um, very mild and you know very manageable eventually, but went through a period of it being quite bad and, and having to learn how to self-manage. Um, and that sparked my interest. I wanted to learn more. And for me, I think the more I know about a condition, the more I understand it, the more I can self-manage, the less anxious I feel about it, the more I feel in control um, and that I have some kind of control and choice about what I'm doing to, to manage the condition. Um, so I think for me, that's probably why I wanted to go into cancer, because I thought, actually, the more I can uh, throw myself into it and the more I can learn about it the more I can not only help myself but also maybe have that privileged view of being able to use some of my experiences to maybe help others not directly so not by kind of saying hi I'm Rhea I've had cancer how can I help <laughs> but kind of indirectly by just having that little bit of insight into like walking onto a chemo unit being able to walk in and know from a patient's point of view what it's like um, and picking up on little things like that to help with service development where maybe people may not have picked up on it. If you haven't been through that experience, there's tiny little nuances that you just, you don't necessarily think of or get taught in books or in university modules. So I kind of wanted to use that dual perspective and use it to do something good. It kind of made me feel that if you're gonna go through a really stressful, rubbish situation, if you can try and get something positive out at the end of it, then it kind of makes it worthwhile. Um, and one of the positives is that I get to now support other people who are going through it and also give back a little bit. So I had, as I said, you know, such incredible support from the teams that I was lucky to have um, that it's quite nice to know that I'm able to do that for somebody else then as well. So, yeah, and actually I was con concerned, you know, I did reflect on how would I cope meeting people who've got, you know, similar diagnoses or similar age or similar circumstances. Um, and I've, you know, I've had the experience now of delivering bad news and um, having those conversations and supporting patients. But actually, when you're with them, it's not about you. You don't, you're not there. You're there to support them. It's not you as a person. You're there as their nurse and as their support. Um, and it's only kind of afterwards, maybe when you're at home that you reflect on it. But during the time when you're with them, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really enter your mind because you're focused on that individual. So, um, yeah, luckily, I, I, my concerns and I've been very open with the people that I work with as well. So um, they know my situation. So they're all very supportive um, and they're all quite uh, positive about you know the dual benefit of, of having had that kind of diagnosis and experience and being able to work in it as well. Um, it could be a negative for some people, and I think, but I think being open and honest about it helps mitigate that risk of it being negative. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and Ria, what did you know about kind of chemotherapy and radiotherapy prior to receiving it? You know, thinking about your training as a nurse. 
we still see that you know some clinical nurse specialists are, have such amazing knowledge of immunotherapy of hormone therapy of chemotherapy but maybe lacking some of that knowledge around radiotherapy what was your experience as a nurse and then as a patient waiting to go for radiotherapy had you heard of it before um so i was kind of aware of it but i have to say only from patients having that i've met so when one of the first trusts that i worked in um it was a specialist bones and plastics and we did a lot of head and neck surgery and had a lot of head and neck cancer patients through um and breast cancer as well so you're aware of it from um patient experiences and patient feedback and looking through patients notes but during actual nurse training nothing at all particularly about um you know cancer itself really um apart from shadowing people and and trying to learn from them um from a personal point of view i think a lot of what i knew about it before i actually had to experience it myself as i said were just from what i've seen in films and television series and what i've read in books and actually radiotherapy doesn't come up as much as chemo it's always chemo that you see in films and that you see in the television series it's always the hair loss and the sickness and the chemo that they're going through very very rarely is it ever mentioned about the fact that they're having radiotherapy what is that what are the effects like from that um so that was quite quite a shock really i think going through it and thinking actually what yeah this isn't what i was expecting um and why isn't it kind of portrayed more in media i don't I don't know i don't know whether it's because it's you know, not as... Because we're stuck in a bunker, Rio. Oh. No one wants to come down to the bunker, do they? <laughs> There's no windows, <laughs> it's artificial lighting, it's just people like us. Well, I think diagnostics possibly get more of that, don't they? They get kind of thought that they're just in a little dark room somewhere just looking at images constantly. <laughs> but no, it's really sad that you don't get the advertising, you don't get that media presence. Um, and I've learnt so much over the last what, five years now from more, probably from social media more than anything else, from being on Twitter and from following people like yourselves and um, action radiotherapy and being involved in the webinars and um, kind of meeting amazing um, therapeutic radiographers such as Dr. Lisa Durrant and, um, you know, just, yeah, incredible people that I've met along the way who've taught me a huge amount. And then I've gone on and kind of learned more myself, but I've had to kind of do it off my own back really um it's not something that from a professional point of view previously really had much kind of training or experience even in my when i did my masters um in pain we did a module on cancer pain but again there wasn't a huge amount really it was much more uh kind of palliative focus and and more about kind of um how to manage pain in a palliative setting and the pain from cancer itself rather than necessarily kind of treatment related effects um which i think is really important now we you know there is much more awareness being raised of that kind of issue now as well which is great um and what you guys do your podcast got me through my marathon beautifully i listened to multiple ones I know you you talked about family. A theme on the podcast that comes up all the time is the bystander effect. And obviously you going through a pregnancy where you, you know, you mentioned that you were told that, oh, this is probably just postpartum, this is normal. But then eventually it wasn't. How did that affect, I suppose, the relationship with the rest of your family, but also also your boy? So if I'm being honest, I think they were probably affected by it more than I was. Um, I think emotionally, obviously physically it affected me far more, but emotionally wise, I think they were far more affected and had far less support. Um, so um, not 
I don't remember anyone ever suggesting that my husband, for instance, or my mum could have access to counselling or support. Um, there was no real obviously my son was so little there wasn't any support for him apart from you know physically having people to look after him and I had an amazing network of friends and family who um who did help and, and took it in turns um and I did find a charity um called Homestart who provided a kind of volunteer who came around and and would help take my daughter to the park and things to give my husband a little bit of respite and um but again, I had to find that for myself. Um, I don't ever remember being signposted to resources or support that was out there, um, financial advice or anything like that particularly. And that's something that, you know, where I work now, we're really, really keen and proactive about to make sure that our patients and their family know that they've got access to support here and we can signpost them to any resources that we have available for any you know whether it's physical effects emotional effects financial social um and that's something that i feel was probably lacking um we had like a health visitor that would come and check in on my daughter but again it was more of a normal health visiting service that I don't remember there being as much of an acknowledgement that this might be a slightly different situation now that there's cancer involved as well. Um, yeah, it was interesting that, especially from the counselling point of view, and now I've been through um, an experience not only having been the person with cancer, but also the bystander with one of my close friends that went through a cancer diagnosis and, and eventually died. Um, it was definitely harder seeing her going through it than it was actually going through it myself so I do think that I think we under acknowledge and underappreciate how traumatic it is for the individuals watching on because at least as the person going through it your job is to have your treatment and to get through it you're doing something proactive whereas for them they're kind of standing in the sidelines really quite helpless not feeling like they can do anything to to change it and that's really really hard um so, yeah, I definitely think that's something that needs to be acknowledged more and that there needs to be more support signposted to people. They may not want it and that's absolutely fine, but it's making sure that they're aware that if and when they do, whether that's, you know, months or years down the line, that that's still available for them. Um, yeah, I think the, vol the volunteer from the charity was amazing. Though. That was probably the one part of it that was just an absolute you know, godsend. It was brilliant. It was really lovely for my husband to know that he could just relax and, and switch off for a little bit knowing that you know the kids were taken care of because obviously he had to look after them um as well as then worrying about me and and he was still trying to work at points as well so it was really yeah really quite challenging um but he did an amazing job bless him and you know with my friends helping out and taking the kids and driving me to and from treatment because my uh, treatment center was what minimum 45 minutes each way normally probably an hour or so with traffic so it's quite a long old journey and no you know no way that there was going to be any public transport or, or any ways that I'd have been able to afford in a taxi or anything like that and again there was no conversations about what would happen if I couldn't get a lift if my friends couldn't take me what would have happened there was no and, and it never came up luckily but there was also never that conversation to say you know don't worry if you can't there is transport available we can organize transport for you there's these services available um we're very lucky where we are in north devon that we do have charitable um uh, charitable support for a cancer care car that can take people to and from treatments for a minimal cost um so we are very lucky and i appreciate not everywhere has that but um 
I think they should definitely it's a massive part you know the the fatigue the nausea the bowel and bladder all of that makes you really anxious about the journey anyway when it's really long um but then adding into that the stress of having to think about who can take you and then the stress you're putting onto them financially as well as having maybe take time off work or trying to juggle kids because a lot of them had children the same age as me we met through antenatal groups and things so it just added to that kind of guilt that you feel as well that you're putting on other people which again nobody mentions about the guilt and the grief that you experience when you go through a cancer diagnosis and treatment where you feel guilty and bad that you're you know not able to do the things that you normally would and that you have to ask for help i'm never very good at asking for help so that was quite a <laughs> that was quite a big thing that's a health that's a healthcare professional problem yeah. though isn't it i'm very good I'm at fine. helping other I've got people this. <laughs> yeah it's interesting you said about transportation so yes we have hospital transport i mean i remember four or five years ago when hospital transport it would arrive within 30 minutes now it's a window of two to three hours minimum but also there's a stat from the department of health who say that for radiotherapy in the UK, the recommendation is that no patient should travel more than 45 minutes one way for treatment. I think the actual stat from it, just because I've used this in a talk recently, about 3.5 million people have had to travel more than 45 minutes for cancer treatment in the UK for a very long time, which is quite a lot. So I think it it doesn't help, obviously, with radiotherapy. There aren't that many centres, really. The geography, I mean... You know, if you think of certain areas, there would always been one main centre and patients, you know, for the southwest of England, for example, Bristol was the main one. Patients would have travelled right down from Cornwall all the way up. Um, so, yeah, that that's where Radiotherapy UK, um, as you mentioned them earlier, that's where they come in and hopefully keep fighting. Well, we've got that where we are in North Devon. So our patients have to go to Exeter for the radiotherapy. Um, and that's a minimum of kind of what, 45 minutes to an hour drive for some of our patients. It's an hour and a half. Um, and having to do that five days a week <laughs> for some patients is just they do have accommodation in places as well that you can but again if people have got young children to stay away kind of for five nights that's a huge chunk of your time and and to have to have that support so I needed a huge amount of support at home as well so especially when I was having the chemotherapy just trying to get in the shower and have a shower or just trying to get to the toilet at some points was exhausting and I don't know how confident I would have been if I'd been on my own I don't know how people do it if they don't have that support at home I think that would have been a really scary experience especially because I had a couple of instances where I got really poorly with it and needed to have ambulances called or needed to get kind of urgent taxis to get into hospital to be admitted Um, and I think if I'd been on my own I'm not sure how I would have managed that I was very lucky that my mum and my husband were there at the time to call the ambulance and to kind of talk to me and stuff but yeah it's quite a scary prospect so yeah I'm really glad you brought that up Ria because that was definitely something I was thinking you know the time it takes to get to radiotherapy then waiting for the radiotherapy although the actual treatment itself is quite quick you know if there are any delays or if you have a, a bladder or bowel protocols specifically that you have to follow that can take a, a, a lot longer um, and obviously for you was there that consideration that you had a young baby and you know if if you didn't have anyone to help or support was there acknowledgement that you'd have to bring your baby with you uh, any acknowledgement around breastfeeding anything like that I don't remember there being any, no, I remember that um, the the actual radiotherapy appointments, they were 
really good at trying to arrange them for times that fit outside of the school run so that my friends could bring me. Um, so I do remember them being really, really flexible and accommodating as much as they could be. Um, and you know, fitting in around times when I'd ended up being admitted and then having to have, you know, my one day a week where I had the long day of cisplatin and then had to have it at the end. And um, so they were really, really good at trying to be accommodating and, and that flexibility. Um, but I don't remember there being any specific conversations or acknowledgement that things could be slightly more tricky um, with having a very small child. From the breastfeeding point of view, that was probably the most traumatic part of all of it because I had to stop quite suddenly. Um, I stopped when I was in hospital because I was admitted for you know, three or four days before I had my diagnosis. I ended up having to stop quite suddenly anyway because I was too poorly. Um, Physically wise, it wasn't traumatic. I think my body knew that it just was not able to cope with that amount of energy you have to produce to, to produce milk. And it, it, I never had any problems with stopping feeding because I didn't really have a huge amount of milk there anyway by that point. Um, but psychologically and emotionally, I think that was probably one of the hardest parts of it. Um, but again, I don't don't remember there being any signposting to resources there was certainly no discussion now I, I you know I've done a lot um spend a lot of time following mummy star who have been absolutely incredible support and do a huge amount to raise awareness especially about kind of donor milk and things and there was no conversations that I didn't know that was a thing until I'd already got in touch with mummy star and by that point it was quite a long time in the future so I didn't even know that was a thing that was possible um and there was no I don't remember ever having any particular advice or guidance about what to do or whether I could keep breastfeeding if I wanted to or um, about kind of um, pumping and dumping or anything or whether that was a thing or not. Um, I just kind of decided myself that it was just easier and less stressful since I'd kind of lost my milk at that point just to leave it as it was. Um, and actually it was really nice for my husband to be able to have that connection with our son as well to be able to feed um, and the amount of time that I was going to be away from home he needed to get used to taking the bottle um so it was just easier to kind of do it for me but i appreciate for many people they want to be able to continue to breastfeed if they can or want to go back to it if they can get it back and um so yeah it's definitely something that certainly when i was diagnosed and treated that was never really mentioned i was hope now now it might be a little bit better but um i think from Mummy Star, uh, I think it is still an issue that isn't recognised enough um, and there isn't enough support out there offered for it. You have to, again, kind of find the support yourself, really. Do you think it affected the bond that you had with your baby? I'm just thinking about kind of just being a new mum. It is challenging at the best of times and you're sleep deprived. Your body has already been through a lot. Um, but obviously for you specifically having cancer as well do, do you kind of reflect upon that time can you foresee that there were any issues with bonding to be honest I think it probably affected me and my daughter more than it did me and my little boy um because he was so little and I think it was quite easy to plonk him on the bed next to me so that I could just chill out watching TV and snoozing with him next to me. And my mum and my husband would keep popping in and out and stuff. And um, so I kind of felt with him, apart from the days where I was in having treatment, the rest of the time he was quite happy just to lie on the bed and sleep with me anyway. And then um, he'd be kind of taken away to if he started getting restless and crying. That was probably the hardest part was when he was in the living room. We were in a two bedroom flat 
and when he was in the living room with my husband or my mum and I could hear him crying and I knew what the crime meant but I couldn't do anything about it and I just kind of wanted to message and say like do this <laughs> and he liked to be rocked in a very specific way and my husband is just like a cement post he does not move flexibly um, and he couldn't do the kind of rocking motion that my son liked to settle in it was like oh just so that was probably a really frustrating part, but I don't think like um, I don't think I felt it affected our bond or that I was kind of distant from him. It probably more so affected my daughter because she was three and a half at the time, and obviously we didn't keep it from her, but we obviously didn't really know how much she'd understand as a three and a half year old. She knew mummy was poorly and that mummy needed to have medicine that might make her a little bit sick before she got better, um, and we didn't really know how much she took in of it. But I think that probably affected our relationship more and it really helped her and my husband's relationship because they spent so much more time together because as a three and a half year old, she had way too much energy and was far too loud and far too in need of somebody to be really enthusiastic and energetic. And I just couldn't I couldn't do that mentally or physically, whereas with my son, he was happy to sleep. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was probably more that. And again, there wasn't there wasn't any of that kind of advice or guidance about what to do about that, about how to maybe manage that, uh, or in the future, whether she might need some support or counselling if it affected her. We kind of discovered by fluke, really, um, that she had taken on board far more than we thought. It was a couple of years later. I think it's when we moved to Barnstable in North Devon um, from Kent, and I was going to work in the hospital in my new job um and we were having a conversation on the dinner table and she suddenly burst into tears and it was like what is going on um and she just she thought I was going back to the hospital as in as a patient not recognizing that I was going there to work <laughs> and we were like where has this come from and it suddenly we suddenly clicked that actually she'd taken all of it in and we hadn't really realized how much she'd taken it in but now she's nine um, and we've had really I've had really honest conversations with her about you know what mummy had she knows it was cancer she knew she knows that it was cervical cancer we've explained to her what it is and every year she does like the Eve appeal walks and things with me to like raise money and she does the smear for smear and um, all of that kind of thing so she's really engaged with it um, and she knows that it is cancer she knows what that is and she's seen programs where people have died from cancer and she she's aware that that is something that happens but she knows that the medicines mummy's had has made her better and so you know five years later and mummy's still fine and has no cancer and it's all good so um yeah now she has rationalized it really well for a nine-year-old probably better than some adults would um but kind of around probably that you know five or six years old there was that period where it kind of started to come out a little bit um and some signposting or some maybe uh some awareness for us that that could happen in the future. I didn't even think about it. I just thought she's three and a half. She won't remember any of it anyway. Um, would have been really useful, actually. Um, you know, would have been really helpful. So I think the honesty element's really great because any of um, the patients we have that I speak to who have young children, quite a few of them will start treatment and say, nope, we're hiding it. Not, you know, I'm, I'm staying at my mum's or something. But I think that burden then later down the line it can be quite as you said kids are sponges um they, they take everything in but i know there are lots of departments that if they have a teenage young adult or pediatric kind of wing as well that if patients bring you know 
their little child with them sometimes a play therapist will take them in and help in that side so there, there is that support but obviously not every center offers that either um i know i've I'm, I'm sure joe you've done it too if we've had a young patient they brought their child into reception you know i've helped look after them put them on the swingy chair or something like just like it is nice to see that they you know some some people don't have support some people don't have family to rely on some people don't necessarily have friends like where i work we have people from abroad who have literally moved here for a job and their family aren't here so they're navigating that in a different environment like it is it's quite a lot to deal with i also think as well sometimes when you've got um when you've got children in the mix that there might be resources so there might be flashcards or books or google that you might think as a as a cancer patient going through cancer right i'll see how i should talk to my child about cancer but actually i don't think there's the psychological support so from a trained psychologist that maybe feeds into educating healthcare providers for patients who have children to have those conversations and sometimes like Ria, you're a healthcare professional. I'm sure you dealt with that conversation beautifully with your daughter. But I can also imagine that if you're not within that kind of cancer setting, that cancer field, you yourself as a patient maybe don't understand what you've really gone through. That must be a really challenging conversation to have with a child. So Ria, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your experiences now treatment is finished and um you know in terms of your follow-up appointments and things like that yeah so um once my treatment was over so during my treatment obviously i had lots and lots of support constantly seeing range of health professionals all the time um and then once i'd finished treatment there was kind of a big gap for that three months whilst you wait for your first post scan um to know whether it had been treatment had been successful and and that is a big abyss to be thrown into without any real support um so when i went through it i never had i never heard of a holistic needs assessment now we make now we obviously try and make sure that our patients get those regularly um so that they don't feel like that they've been thrown into that abyss without overwhelming them but still making them aware that they've got that support there um and then i think again i didn't meet a therapeutic radiographer after that so i saw um i had my review um radiographer during the treatment um but as soon as i'd finished treatment that was it it was only the oncologist that i saw afterwards um and again the oncology appointments and this is no offense to you know from an oncology side of things but their focus is on has the cancer been treated have you got a recurrence um any symptoms of recurrence that they need to kind of, you know, make sure that you've had imaging done and things. Um, that was much more the focus for the next couple of years afterwards. Um, far more so than any kind of concern about any potential ongoing long-term or late effects that I was experiencing. Um, and again, I don't think it's necessarily because they don't want to help or don't want to know, but there's only so much capacity that they have. And, you know, that's not their specialist area and, so I definitely think in hindsight, if I'd continued to have 
some more regular support from a therapeutic radiographer, I think that would have been really beneficial as the people or a clinical nurse specialist who specialises in radiotherapy or, you know, a professional who understands the treatment and understands the long term effects or the potential um, and can signpost to resources and can advise on supported self-management and, you know, refer if needed for further investigations. I think that would have been really helpful. Um, I was lucky that I found Dr. Durrant, um, who was amazing and, you know, was really validating experience to sit with somebody and really have my experiences explained why I was getting the long term effects that I was getting, because I'd kind of had it implied by some people that I'd spoken to that radiotherapy doesn't cause these kinds of symptoms and, you know, symptoms settle within two weeks of finishing treatment, and <laughs> um, which isn't always the case. Um, but I think if I if you have that specialist person then that is their job, I think that would have been really useful, even if it was kind of every other appointment. You saw a consultant, you know, your oncologist or your surgeon, gynecologist for one of them. And then the next appointment you had with therapeutic radiographer to review from a side effect. I think that would have been really, really beneficial. Um, Can I say something yeah. a bit controversial quickly? Oh, go on. I'm a therapeutic radiographer. I work in review. Yes. I, I like Lisa and what she does is incredible and obviously we need more of it but the current pathways for every patient I think the follow-up that little bit where you basically get thrown off a cliff I think it's so tokenistic at the moment I hate it I'm going to be very passionate and strong about it we give patients numbers say call us if you have a problem I mean I'm not going to call someone if I've got a problem I don't want to bother you no. I think there should be scheduled follow-ups and I, I'm yeah. very yeah. I've, like lots of people will shoot me down for this but just because they've had radiotherapy doesn't mean that the problems or things we've created don't continue afterwards. Yeah. It's still our responsibility. I mean, we say up till you have the follow-up with your oncologist, you are radiotherapy's responsibility. Because if you think overarching care bearer as a clinical nurse specialist, they don't get involved during radiotherapy because it's us. We're supposed to deal with it as therapeutic radiographers. So after the clinical follow-up, that's when the clinical nurse specialist comes back into it. So it is our responsibility. I think one example is like breast cancer patients. Now we have five fractions, five appointments. Great, but they don't get seen during the treatment anymore in lots of departments because they don't get side effects. Of course they do. What about the psychological impact? But then we call them 10 days after when it's almost too late. There's nothing you can do as a therapeutic radiographer 10 days after because you don't have a baseline. You've not talked to them before. They don't know who you are. You're talking them through to like through a phone. Just had to get it out there. I just yeah, it no, just annoys me. Completely agree. Um, but also, I think that CNSs should have more information. They should have more education and knowledge. They are the one consistent person throughout the whole of the patient's pathway. Whether it's you know when they're being diagnosed, when they're being treated for years afterwards, whilst they're having follow up, they're the one consistent person. And I think having more education and training and experience and opportunities to sit in with therapeutic radiographers and learn from them and be skilled and um, more knowledgeable about what kind of symptoms and side effects so that they can check in with patients as well and they get back to you guys and say do you know what I've spoken to the patient they're really struggling would you be able to you know support them would you be able to contact them what would you advise us to be able to say to them I think there needs to be more of that I don't think it should be your problem or our problem it should be all of our problems we should be working as a truly multidisciplinary integrated team uh, not kind of a well you're having chemo so you're with us and then you go off for radiation so you help with them and then back to the surgeons and then back to uh, just it's just really 
everyone's working in silos, I think, sometimes, and that's where the patients fall through gaps then when nobody takes ownership for it. Um, and that's definitely something that I'm really keen to see more integrated working um, to be able to build that. So, you know, our CNSs here that I've spoken to haven't been to see where radiotherapy is done. They've not seen a LINAC. They've not seen the service. They've not followed a patient through. Um, and I think that's really sad that actually they're missing a big chunk of their patient's pathway. They've got some knowledge theoretically about it, but actually to be able to see it in real time and, and spend time with you guys would be, you know, is fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about making sure that, you know, everyone has more understanding of everyone else's roles as well. So you can all kind of help. When I worked in the pain team back in London, we had a pain management program and we had psychology and physiotherapy and myself as a clinical nurse specialist. But we all knew each other's roles so well that if one of us went off sick, the other one could step in and still deliver the session because we'd spent so much time together and learnt from each other. Um, and it was incredible. It was a fantastic experience. And I'm not saying I could step in and go and, you know, deliver radiotherapy, but I could offer support then for that patient. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, and yes, you know, it's great to say to patients, here's our number, contact us. But you're right. Patients don't like bothering people. Some patients are quite happy to contact, which is fantastic. But the majority of them, especially some of our older patients, they are quite stoic and they don't want to bother people or they're in a little bit of denial or they don't realise it's a problem because they may not have had enough information given to say that it is a problem. They just assume, well, it's part of my treatment. It's just normal. So I'll just kind of suck it up and get on with it really um and i think that's something that we need to to be better at as well is making sure that people are much more informed about what to look out for and i think hopefully that's where things like the end of treatment summaries will help and um more of the kind of information sessions as well and um these podcasts which hopefully patients will listen to as well as professionals <laughs> ria something else we're quite passionate about well quite quite passionate to talk about and try and open up the conversation is probably around sex and intimacy yeah i know you're quite open about this not just because you've been telling us but i've watched a few webinars where you've talked about things and you're very open with your experiences to help other people yeah. you know if you don't mind sharing it um yeah. what was your experience doing obviously postpartum and then treatment as well so again that was probably one of the areas where information and support was lacking um you know lots of information about dilators which are hideous and need to be got rid of and replaced by something from Ann Summers or Joe Devine. <laughs> I want to know if a man designed have, dilators. Must have been because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not being funny but no female would ever design them like that. They're awful. Um, I urge anyone if you haven't seen what a dilator is that the NHS give out find somebody who's got a pack of them. Go and see them. Go and touch them and look at them. They're awful. Um and actually, there's, you know, whether it's a vibrator or a dilator for patients, it doesn't make any difference. And there's some research that actually vibrators might be slightly better because of the improved kind of circulation and blood supply and healing. And um, But yes, they're rubbish. But there was lots of information about how to use them and when to use them and the importance of using them. But there wasn't any signposting to resources about, you know, being suddenly menopausal at 34, 35 years old, and the impact that that would have um, about using kind of the dilators, or if you don't want to use the dilators or can't use them, what else you can use instead, apart from normal penetrative sex. 
Now that's assuming that everyone has normal penetrative sex, which you know lots of people don't. So I think that was definitely an area that was lacking. Um, signposting to resources as well was slightly lacking. I was lucky at one part of my kind of pathway that I got to meet um, a urogynecologist or urogyne, um, and he'd worked, I believe, if I'm correct, with Sam Evans, um, kind of of Joe Divine fame, um, and developed kind of information leaflets and stuff. So I was quite lucky then that I got more information, but it was after all my treatment had finished and it was months down the line when I was having symptoms and problems. So it was kind of like shutting the door after the horse had already bolted. Better to have had that information up front than you know, months afterwards. Um, but I was lucky I got the information at all. I just Googled it. It was a man, oh, Alfred Heger, in 1879. Oh they haven't changed 1879. It. <laughs> oh my God, 1879. Yeah, so they're originally used in the field of gynecology, gynecology, sorry, um, Dilators typically are a set of metal rods of increasing diameter. Well, they're not metal anymore, thankfully. <laughs> um, so speculums must have been invented by the same person, I reckon, because they're quite similar. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was definitely lacking and I had to initiate any conversations about the impact that the radiotherapy and menopause had had on sexual function. Um, there weren't really any conversations initiated from my kind of health professional team about it um it was much more questions about you know functionally are you having any bleeding are you having any discharge it was functional questions about recurrent symptoms rather than um anything else really so that wasn't great um so now last year when we had our revalidation for our cancer cns's that i um took some dilators and vibrators and different things with me to show people and they were shocked at how awful they were so I made them look at them and you know touch them and go oh my god this is what we give to patients there must be better ones out there they just cost a bit more like um and just to get across to people actually the importance of talking about it because if as health professionals we can't initiate the conversation what hope have our patients got of doing it you know not everyone is as uh, comfortable being open about it and they need permission, they need to know that it's a safe space, that they can talk about it if they've got problems and if they want to. Um, and I think that has to sit with us as the health professionals to take that responsibility. We shouldn't rely on our patients to have to do that for themselves. Um, so I definitely think that that needs to be worked on. Even gynecologists um, don't, aren't always really particularly comfortable breach, approaching those conversations because they're quite focused on I think it's because their focus is that recurrent side of things. And I understand why, because obviously that needs to be picked up. You don't want to be having all your conversations in your clinic about, you know, sexual function when actually they haven't pointed out that they've got a new lump or bump or um so, so I do, I get it, but there needs to be a balance. We need to be able to do both. Um, our counsellors here are really good. Um, they support our patients. We can signpost to them for kind of psychosexual counselling, although that's not their speciality, but they have a special interest in it. So they've taken it upon themselves to kind of do courses and learn more. But we don't have a specific kind of psychosexual service that we can refer patients to here. Um, uh, so, yeah, a lot of it was kind of just... And I was chatting to... Um, one of my colleagues, uh, was it today or yesterday, saying that in, in gynae cancer, it, it feels a little bit neglected, which is sounds daft because, you know, that's quite a major sexual organ. <laughs> but, you know, if you have breast cancer, you're offered the thought of reconstruction. Um, if you have testicular cancer, 
you're offered the possibility of prosthesis. Um, but when it comes to gynecological cancers, there isn't, they don't tend to be those conversations or those offers there. And I'm, I'm, it may be that actually it's not possible, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate, but at least some validation and recognition that the treatment that you've given has long-term consequences for people, whether it's aesthetically because they've had surgery to their vulva, whether it's because of the radiotherapy damage or the menopause that's caused it, you know, whatever it is, to have that validation validation for the patient and that recognition that it is a big thing for people and it you know although there is support out there and you can find other ways to be able to um you know manage your uh, sex and intimacy and people need to know that and they need to have those open conversations and be signposted um and yeah i think these kinds of podcasts and you know liz Reardon is a fantastic advocate for sex and intimacy and breaking kind of taboos and eva peel and everyone have done such brilliant work with it so it is getting better um but i think we still have a long way to go for it to be part of just normal everyday practice where it's just like talking about anything else like bowels and bladders and um that we've got better at talking about now we did um, actually, for anyone who's listening, um, we've got an amazing um, patient advocate um, called Sarah Jane Meyer, who we did um, a little bit of a mini series on Instagram. And um, something that she said that always sticks with me is the fact that she had a clinical nurse specialist talk to her for about an hour about the psychological impact of losing her hair and using a, a calling cap and things like that. And not at any point did anyone talk to her about sex or intimacy f- and she had a gynecological cancer and it is isn't it it's that kind of it's it's giving you lots of information about things but missing that out when you know function is going to be altered and probably sharing a bit too much information but I I used to do the feminine care talks and I like to know what things are like when I'm like advising patients <laughs> and I know personally the dilators are absolutely rubbish because I was like I wonder from a positioning perspective um you know how you're gonna tell people to use them absolutely rubbish so yeah, yeah. Sam Joe Divine all the way huge advocates on yes, chat. definitely um so don't don't be alarmed if if you get given the horrible plastic dilators and then you don't it. have to use them <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> get your own that works for you um yeah. no I do signpost patients I have signposted them to Joe Divine I do have to give them a bit of a disclaimer though when I signpost them to them that um there are lots of different um uh tools available on there um, and <laughs> just just be open-minded <laughs> um, yeah you're not trying to change their sex habits is what you need to say there's a lot i've opened it with colleagues and been like oh i didn't realize that all of this stuff was on here yeah be careful on the nhs google <laughs> <laughs> that's very do you know i've never even thought about that before but i have had i have had I've got a colleague at work and it's john not joe mcnamara and he gets the most amazing questions from students. And he's like, what do you do? Like, seriously, some of the emails that people have emailed him, it's hilarious. Right, Ria, we knew this would happen. Uh, we have talked for probably over an hour. Um, at the end of all of our podcasts, we love to ask our guests any top tips. Now, you've given lots throughout the entirety of the episode, but... What stands out for you in terms of kind of giving some hints and tips to maybe patients and healthcare professionals? So I think from a patient perspective, it's about 
making sure that you advocate for yourself and remember to ask that actually it's okay to ask questions there's no such thing as a stupid question um you know anything that you have going through your head that you're not sure about just reach out and ask someone if you don't ask you're never going to find out um and that was something that i think at times i struggled with a little bit because i felt like I didn't want to bother people, um, so I just Google it and find out myself instead. But that's not always the most correct, accurate information. Um, from a health professional point of view, just to remind people, I guess, that this might be an everyday occurrence for you. This might be your everyday job. But for the individual in front of you, it's not. It's scary. It's an unknown. And, you know, your interpersonal skills are key to making them feel at ease and making what could be a traumatic experience far less traumatic um, and it's that that they'll remember about you they won't remember what you got for your exams or whether you're really good with your physics or not but they will remember how kind you were and how warm you were so um, and from a student's point of view just I think I put this quoting my own article <laughs> but um, just, you know, learn and gain experience and knowledge, but always remember that there is a person behind that patient in front of you and they've got their own things going on for them. And it's amazing the priorities patients have that you wouldn't expect. You'd expect really obvious things like finances and things, but actually they're worried about their budgie that's at home and going to be on their own kind of thing. So just, yeah, always remember to put that that person rather than the patient in front of you amazing top tips thank you so much Ria we always knew we'd we'd chat for well over the time the time allocation we knew it would happen but some amazing conversations and I suppose for anyone listening who is a clinical nurse specialist or is about to go into the field um, we have got some great content on Instagram but also some webinars we've done specifically for clinical nurse specialists about radiotherapy so if you do want to learn more you want to see the radiotherapy treatment planning and how the doses actually affect patients then please do check that out on our YouTube channel. Your hosts today have been Joe McNamara and Nomanjolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Rhea Crichton. If you're using this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with links to the resources and literature we've discussed. And we're going to pop in the information about the dilators so you can absolutely easily see how horrific they are. Um, and to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Dr. Alex King, who will be discussing his role as a consultant and psychologist in the NHS. So thank you so much for listening and take care.